Listener Production. All right, cracker of a briefing for you today. We're talking about the founder of Patagonia and his truly revolutionary decision to give away his $3 billion company. It can never be sold to the wrong people after work long gone and everything. That's Yvonne Schoenard, who started out by making his own climbing gear and then created the most incredible company. Now, at the age of 83, he's found a way to keep giving back to the environment long after he dies. Essentially, the environment will now be the key stakeholder of Patagonia. The Schoenard family itself and Patagonia have spent years and many millions of dollars already buying up and protecting wild, undeveloped lands around the world. The Patagonia story and this radical act of philanthropy. That is our briefing. First, today's headlines with Katrina Blowers. It's Tuesday, the 4th of October. Interest rates are expected to go up again for a record sixth time today. It's expected the Reserve Bank will increase the cash rate by 0.5% for the fifth month in a row. That'll take the cash rate to 2.85%. Oh yeah, this is going to hurt a lot of people. So three out of four of the big banks are predicting that it will go up by a 0.5% increase today. But the Commonwealth Bank chief economist is predicting a small increase of 0.25%. So what's going on here is that either this month or possibly next month, Most economists are expecting the Reserve Bank will slow down from these massive 0.5% increases to the smaller 0.25%, but just a question of when. Yeah, so if it is that greater hike this month, what that means is if you have a mortgage of $750,000, you're going to be paying another $200 a month. That's on top of all the other increases this year, and they've brought repayments up by around $1,100 a month. And I guess a lot of people are asking, why does the Reserve Bank keep doing this? Why are they acting so aggressively? And it's many economists are saying, well, most of the banks, they're only just starting to pass on those increases to consumers now. So you'll start feeling those in your mortgage repayments this month and next month. Retail spending is still incredibly strong. So people are still spending as much at the shops as they ever were. But I think the real test is going to be this Christmas. It's going to be pretty grim for a lot of people. Yeah, well, that's why a lot of people are saying the Reserve Bank is moving way too fast because they can't see the actual impact of these rate Mm. hikes yet, but they're still jamming them up. We're already seeing it, maybe not in retail spending, but it's already hitting the property market. There were more CoreLogic figures out yesterday showing national prices dropped 1.4% in just one month, down 5.5% in total since the peak in April around the country. But cities like um, the one where I live and own a property are copying it worse, down 9% since January already. So it looks like they're going to keep going down. Alan Kohler on the ABC, who's pretty measured, said this could be one of the worst housing downturns in Australian history and urged the Reserve Bank governor to pause um, this hiking cycle. Yeah, which would be quite the legacy for him, wouldn't it? Um, Yeah, and, and not a great one either. Yeah, not at all. Meantime, interesting economic news out of the UK as well, Katrina. Um, We were watching it. It didn't quite make the headlines last week, but a story we've been keeping an eye on, um, the UK Prime Minister, the new one, Liz Truss, um, has had to reverse a controversial tax cut for the highest income earners because last week it sent their financial markets and their currency into meltdown, and now she's come out and backflipped on it. Um, So what was going on here was 
a clash of fiscal and monetary policy. So their central bank is in a similar situation to ours, trying to fight inflation by turning down the screws on the economy by jacking up rates. But this tax policy from Liz Truss was going to pump more money into the economy through tax cuts to the rich. And that gave everyone the jitters over there. And the pound started dropping. The central bank had to start buying bonds. It was chaos, but it's kind of calmed down now. In Australia, our government and Reserve Bank are in lockstep. Um, The Reserve Bank's tightening the screws and the government's trying Mm. to keep spending low. But the UK situation's sort of raising questions about our stage three tax cuts for higher income earners, which are going to come in 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 two years. I think they're going to keep facing questions about that over the coming months. Absolutely, especially now that, um, you know, people like Jackie Lambie, who who originally voted in support of them, she's saying that uh, <laughs> it's in such a mess, we should definitely scrap those stage three tax cuts. Um, she likened it to trying to clean up the rubbish from a split garbage bag by wiping down the outside of the bag. <laughs> so she, she says that like most Australians, that money should go towards spending on education and health and roads instead. And more heavy rain and more flooding expected across eastern Australia this week, according to the Bureau of Meteorology. Oh, I think everyone just wants this to stop and it's not going to. Uh, Showers and thunderstorms are coming for South Australia, northwest Victoria and the New South Wales south coast today. Parts of Queensland and New South Wales are looking at more than 100 millimetres falling. So not great for parts of the ground that are just saturated Mm. already and have flooded so many times already. Oh yeah, such a bad scene. So western New South Wales was already flooding last week and a lot of those areas are going to see heavy falls again. Today is the first day of the trial for the alleged assault of Brittany Higgins in Parliament House. Yeah, this trial has already been delayed because of the publicity around it and it's going to last up to seven weeks. So this morning, the jury is going to be selected and the judge has already told a pre-trial hearing she will ask these potential jurors to search their souls about whether they can be impartial. So Brittany Higgins alleges she was raped by her then colleague Bruce Lehrman in the ministerial office of the then Defence Minister Linda Reynolds in the early hours of the morning on the 23rd of March 2019. Lehrman has pleaded not guilty. Yeah, so the ACT Supreme Court over the next seven weeks will hear evidence from Brittany Higgins, journalists, parliamentary security and political figures. Optus has now clarified the exact number of people affected by the hack, which happened over a week ago now. 2.1 million customers have had an identity document number exposed where they may need to take action. That's Optus CEO Kelly Bayer-Rosmer in there. And um, yeah, these numbers that have come out have basically confirmed what we already knew. Um, 9.8 million people had their data accessed. Uh, 7.7 million don't need to replace their documents, but that's 2.1 million, as she just said, customers that do, which is crazy. That includes 150,000 passport numbers, 50,000 Medicare numbers. Oh, gosh. So I I guess I'm an Optus customer and I was thinking to myself, I'm fine. I haven't been contacted by Optus yet. This is all cool. And then I was reading that in the past day, Optus has sent text messages or emails to customers who've had their driver's license numbers taken in every state and territory except for Victoria and Queensland. And people in those states are expected to get contacted in the next few days. So 
I think I'll be checking yeah. checking my phone for a few days longer yet. Uh, so we do have an external review that's been announced by Deloitte, but Optus hasn't yet committed to releasing it. So um, it'll be interesting to see what that turns up. Yeah, I wonder if she'll do the old politician trick. Oh, we've launched a review, so we can't talk about it because the review's underway. We'll wait oh. for the review, but when the review comes out, we won't actually release it. Yeah, well, because <laughs> the review's now under review. <laughs> All right, Katrina, we'll catch you again soon. Rihanna's about to join me for a really interesting chat about the founder of Patagonia. Well, you've probably heard of the saying, all talk, no action, but the founder of outdoor company Patagonia... Yvonne Chouinard has really put his money where his mouth is, hasn't he, Rihanna? Yeah, he has all $3 billion of it, in fact, and handed over his company to a new trust which is aimed at combating climate change. I've had several uh, times in my life when I woke up and I realised I was part of the problem and that I should do something about that so that I was part of the solution rather than the problem. To explain how Yvonne Chownard's radical act of philanthropy works, we have New York Times reporter David Gallus on the line from upstate New York. David, were there any signs in Yvonne Chownard's upbringing that gave any clues that he would be such a revolutionary? I think his upbringing doesn't fully explain his extraordinary business career. The early parts of his life, he moved from where he was a boy in in the French-Canadian area ultimately to Southern California. He got into falconry and started climbing walls in search of falcon's nests. That ultimately led him to the rock climbing scene in the 1950s. And it was really there in the rock climbing scene in California during the 50s and 60s, where he both sort of found his people, his tribe, if you will, and also became a businessman reluctantly when he discovered that some of the gear they were using to climb the mountains was actually damaging the rock faces. And he came up with a better, less intrusive method of climbing these big rock walls. And that was really the origins of his companies. David, you've been covering Patagonia for nearly a decade, but what have been the most impressive and unusual things that you've seen during this time? Well, even before I began covering the company, Patagonia was really setting itself apart as a truly unusual corporation. Uh, They're a private company, of course, so they're afforded a bit more leeway. But even against that backdrop, it's fair to say that this is truly a company that sort of makes good on its promise to do well by doing good. This is a company that has supported grassroots activists for decades. It's a company that has publicly wrestled with its own contradictions, the fact that it cares deeply about minimizing its ecological impact and still produces tons of clothes that people don't necessarily need. And that all continued when I began covering the company 10 years ago. In the last 10 years, all of those themes have only gotten more intense as the company has entered what was really the most successful period in its history. These days, it just has more resources to do the kind of sort of groundbreaking activism work, political work that has set it apart for so long. And in my tenure, that has included things like suing the Trump administration over plans Mm -hmm. to open federal lands up to more oil and gas drilling. It's included things like massive efforts to turn out the vote and support 
you know, for the most part, democratic politicians. And it's included things like speaking out very vocally against other corporations for what it sees as their hypocrisy, the greenwashing that so many major American corporations participate in, where they talk about making the world a better place, but fail to actually back that up with many actions. The CEO of Patagonia is out there calling out his partners for just not living up to their word. And so all of this, you know, has led up to this rather extraordinary moment that unfolded earlier this month. Yeah, so he's given the company away, essentially, a $3 billion company. Can you explain how this actually works? So what's happening is this. The Schoenard family still owned 100% of Patagonia's shares. They donated 2% of the company, the voting shares, which actually control the company, to a trust. That trust will essentially serve as an additional board of directors for the company, overseeing it, helping appoint the board, appoint the CEO, and essentially acting as a governance layer that tells the company what to do. The other 98% of the shares were donated to a newly established nonprofit corporation, a 501c4 in US terms, that will hold that stock in perpetuity. And what the trust will instruct the corporation to do is donate all of its profits, some $100 million a year, to this new nonprofit, which will then distribute those monies to support environmental causes and efforts to combat climate change. Okay, so what sort of causes and what sort of efforts will it support? The Chouinard family itself and Patagonia have spent years and many millions of dollars already buying up and protecting wild, undeveloped lands around the world. They've spent lots of money in legal fights trying to do that same sort of work. I mentioned their lawsuit against the Trump administration. They also spend a lot of money supporting grassroots, real local environmental activists all around the world who are doing things like trying to promote regenerative agriculture. That's an interesting point you raise about um, political campaigns because so much of the work that needs to be done to turn around our trajectory on carbon emissions is to wind back our heavy emitting industries. And obviously capitalism doesn't take us to that point. It's political will and market intervention um, that's required there. So will it provide any kind of support for any political causes that bring about those kinds of changes? Political causes, I believe, yes, and they've already done so, but their track record suggests that they will stop short of, for example, endorsing and trying to support specific campaigns for politicians. Mm. So how different is this from the normal kinds of trust that big philanthropists in America set up? Say the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for example, um, they moved a huge chunk, about half of their wealth, into their fund and then the profits from the investments of that fund then pay for their philanthropy. Is this similar in some senses, except that the money's all just still sitting in Patagonia? So it's like the money is invested in Patagonia and the profits pay for the philanthropy. Are there some parallels there to those other structures that are so common? Yeah, I mean, each one is a little different. This Hold Fast Collective, it's not clear that they will have an endowment as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation does. You know, there's no indication that they're going to have $10 billion sitting in the bank and distribute, say, the $100 million that uh, comes off it every year. But the company's the endowment, isn't it? 
It, you can think of it that way. But of course, the company is also a company. They're out there making products. They're going to have to invest in capital expenditures, pay salaries, pay the government taxes, build out supply chains. So instead, what's happening is it's just the profits from that company are no longer going to the Chouinard family. And because there are no investors, no public shareholders, there's no investors or shareholders who can expect dividends, for example. Instead, the money's just going to go straight to this nonprofit and be put to work in the field supporting environmental causes. And listen, let's remember, this was a family that developed and ran an enormously successful company for the better part of 50 years. So, you know, by by all accounts, uh, many people would believe that they should be entitled to some material comfort at this point. But to be clear, they are not out there buying yachts. They are not out there buying giant mansions. This is not a family that flies on private airplanes everywhere they goes and is trying to ride in the fanciest cars. Yvonne Chouinard himself drives an old beat-up Subaru, doesn't own a computer, doesn't have a cell phone, and sleeps on his friend's couches when he travels. Mm, it's it's wild. I also drive a beat-up Subaru and wear lots of layers. do I. <laughs> nice. <laughs> It's a really interesting story. Um, could the kids change their minds at some point? Do they have the, the pathway to take back control of the company in the future? I mean, what if this all goes pear-shaped and actually doesn't work? Is there a pathway out of this? There's not. The children gave statements that really spoke to their peace with this structure and their willingness to part ways with, again, what would have been a $3 billion inheritance. It's a rather remarkable thing to publicly acknowledge. Yeah. So do you think this money, about $100 million a year going into the environment to begin with, is that about right? That's what it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that's actually going to make a difference? And do you think this actually might, the impact of this might be more about encouraging other philanthropists to do the same thing? And this starts off a a new trend in philanthropy. Where do you think the real impact will be, if any? Listen, I think, uh, will it make a difference on efforts to preserve the climate? Uh, listen, eh, we need everything to be moving in the right direction. And if this moves a little incrementally, great. This obviously isn't what's going to, you know, put an immediate end to climate change and the emissions of mm. uh, fossil fuels around the globe. Uh, no one's that naive. But will it help preserve undeveloped lands? I believe it will. Will it send real money to grassroots activists? I believe it will. So if you think that's making a difference, then yeah, I'd say it makes a difference. On the second point, I do believe this radical act of philanthropy has really shaken the world up when it comes to people thinking about how they can maximize their philanthropic efforts. Mm. And we haven't seen anyone else do exactly the same thing. It's only been a couple weeks. But I can tell you, I have heard directly from the CEOs and founders of very influential companies that are still privately held that are asking me, hey, if I wanted to do something like this, who should I call? Right. So will we see more? I think we might. Probably the other biggest philanthropic move in history is the Gates Giving Pledge, uh, where they pledged half of their wealth and then encouraged lots of other really rich people to do the same. That was clearly one of the biggest things ever in the world of philanthropy. Do you think this move from Von Chownard is right up there? Yeah, I think it's obviously an apples to oranges comparison. It's, it's not one to one. But I think in some ways this is even more radical than the giving pledge. The issue with the giving pledge, and I think I included this in the story that I wrote originally, 
is that so many of those billionaires who promise to give their money away do so incredibly slowly during their lifetimes, still keep, you know, up to roughly half of their total wealth upon their death and tend to keep getting richer even as they give their money away. Because wealth creates wealth in this economy. And so you can say you're a member of the Giving Pledge and you can give away hundreds of millions of dollars a year over the course of a decade. And you can still be richer than you were when you started this endeavor. What Shinar did is something absolutely different than that. He has simply renounced his claim to the fortune altogether. And he has created a structure where that equity value of his company is never going to be realized. And instead, the profits from his corporation are going to do the work that he cares about most. That was David Gallus from the New York Times with that amazing explainer of the big Patagonia decision. And I really like that we're able to compare it to, say, those other big philanthropic foundations. And David did a great job of pointing out that this is different because it's not just part of someone's wealth, it's the whole company. And also, it's the first time it's been given directly to environmental causes only. Yeah, and you know, when you think about it, Tom, this is just one big, massive troll of big business and his fellow billionaires. And I don't know how you can come back from this. Well, he purposely made it so there's no going back from this, which is part of what's so radical about it. But yeah, for a guy who was kind of a reluctant billionaire, I guess this is the ultimate kind of F you to the orthodoxy of rich business people. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we take a deep dive into the massive DNA bungle in the Queensland Forensic Lab. Listener.